Hey roadies, Paula here. Happy New Year and welcome to Sacred Intersections podcast. So we are dropping this episode on January 6th, 2022 which, as I'm sure you're probably aware of, is the one-year anniversary of the insurrection and the riots at the Capitol building here in the United States in Washington, D.C. And we thought it would be appropriate to mark this day with a re-release of the episode that we recorded in response to that, but also addressing a larger issue of the dangers of Christian nationalism and the religious harm of Christian nationalism. So this episode was originally recorded a few weeks after the insurrection and originally dropped on February 9th, 2021. So as you listen to it, just know that that's kind of the time and space and give you a little context for when this was recorded. But we thought it was important to re-release this because if you've listened to our podcast at all, you know that one of our missions is to address harm that is being done in the name of Jesus. And we felt like that was clearly the case here. One of the things that kind of got us riled up was seeing someone waving a Jesus flag in the midst of the violence that was happening there. So you'll hear some of our thoughts about that. Don't worry, you are going to get new material from Sacred Intersections very soon. So be sure you're subscribed in your podcast feed and that you're following us on all the social media platforms. But for now, here is a re-release of the episode that we did almost a year ago on the dangers of Christian nationalism. Welcome to Sacred Intersections podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Jill. I'm an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA with training in pastoral care and counseling. And I'm Paula. I'm a licensed counselor and a counseling professor and also a person of faith. So as we're getting started, we just wanted to say that Sacred Intersections podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to make you think like us, just to make you think. That is our agenda. Neither one of us speaks on behalf of the Presbyterian Church USA or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives, nor do we speak on behalf of all mental health care professionals and practitioners, on behalf of all people of faith or Jesus followers or white women or Americans or people who love dogs. Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion and spirituality, mental health, and all of those ways that they intersect. So we were already having these kinds of conversations and decided to record them and share them. So we're glad you're along for the journey, even if you're traveling different roads or driving different vehicles than we are. So you just heard our new intro. We added a little bit to telling you who we are and a little bit of a disclaimer there. We were excited about it. Um, we met earlier this month and talked about, was it this month or was it last month? Uh, you know, again, we've said it so many times, time means nothing these <laughs> it days. Does. It doesn't really mean anything. But we are excited because we got to sit down and really do some visioning and dreaming and thinking about how we started this podcast and what we want and our hopes and dreams and started to put some things down. So, yeah, we just wanted to get a little clearer now that we've been doing this a little while about what it's about and what we wanted it to be. And I had been doing some reflecting for one thing that I wanted to share with y'all that that we had really envisioned this being that intersection of mental health and religion and spirituality. And I think that I had fallen into speaking from religious Paula and Christian Paula more than 
mental health, Paula? Well, I love your perspective. And I think it's really important. And if you all haven't figured it out, Paula and I love each other a whole lot. We're very much a mutual admiration society. (laughs) Yes, we are. Um, But we're also excited about um, sharing episodes that are a little bit more focused. A little bit more intentional. Yes. And me being intentional about bringing that mental health aspect in. Yes. We're also going big or going home with the whole intersection and road metaphor. So so strap in. Put your seatbelt on. I love it. (laughs) That one wasn't even planned. That one wasn't even planned. You're amazing. (laughs) So So. today's intersection, our episode for today, is Christian nationalism, which is kind of a big deal right now. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a hot topic. Yeah, we're in February of 2021, and there uh, are a lot of things that have gone into this episode. Both Paul and I have thought individually and done a lot of research on our own, as well as talking about things together. We know that this is a very polarizing topic, and a there are a lot of people that have a lot of feelings about it. So our episode today isn't meant to be disrespectful in any way. It's also not our intention to be super adversarial or anything in particular. We hope that our conversation or hearing our conversation and discussion does not cause any harm. We also know that we have, just like a lot of people, some pretty strong feelings about the topic. So just wanted to give that as a further disclaimer and warning before we get into the meat of the episode. Yeah, one of the conversations that we had when we were doing our visioning was about not wa- about what we wanted the podcast to be and what we didn't want it to be. And we didn't want it to become a bashing of religion or people who think differently than we do or othering as we kind of preach about how bad it is to other people. We didn't want to be doing that in this podcast. And we so part of it was also holding ourselves accountable for doing that. And we also know that in a topic like this that is so polarizing, it's hard for people to hear any opinion on it and not to feel pulled to one of the poles (laughs) with the polarizing. So our intention is not to push the poles further apart. Definitely. But we also, having started this podcast, feeling pretty passionately about the way that especially Christianity has been twisted feel like this is an area where that's happening a lot. It's going to push some buttons, and um, I hope that if it pushes your buttons, you can do what we try to do to sit with that defensiveness that might come up and still think it through and have that either strengthen your own thoughts on it or help you interact perhaps in a different way with your thoughts on these topics. Definitely. Definitely. And if you feel comfortable disagreeing with us or sharing your thoughts, hopefully done in a kind and respectful way, we'd really love to hear from you too. Yeah, always. So, so yeah, it seems like a helpful thing to start by saying our intersection is Christian nationalism. So Paula, when you think about Christian nationalism, what do you think about? How would you define it? You know, it's one of those things when, because we've been building to this episode a long time and you know, we're, we're recording this, and if you're listening to this in the future, we say this several times, we're recording in February 2021, and so it's lots of things are happening in our country and have been happening in our country that are bringing this to the forefront a little bit. It's not a new concept. Definitely. It's not a concept that 
that arose with Trump or Trumpism. So I think, but I think it's one of those terms that you hear it and you kind of like, you know what the individual words mean, right? <laughs> and then, yes. so you can get some idea of what that means together. But I don't know that I had a real good grasp of what the definition was. So I looked up a bunch of different definitions and just what people are saying about it. So I would love to read some of those. But before I do that, do you want to share your conceptualization of it? Yeah, well, you just did, you said something that I felt pretty strongly. I know what both of those words mean. Uh, I think in the process of preparing for this episode, I realized that for a long time when I heard the phrase Christian nationalism, I was equating it to white nationalism, which Mm. is something that I studied a lot in grad school and I have a particular passion of learning about the civil rights movement of the 60s. And I think it's important to clarify because I happen to think that in America, we're in the midst of another civil rights movement, which is really important. But I think about white nationalism, and there are many ways in which Christian nationalism and white nationalism overlap. Yes. But they're not the same thing. And so I think about Christian nationalism in the way that the ideals and morals and standards of Christianity are are lifted up as the same ideals and morals and standards for the entirety of a nation or for a country and not adhering to those ideals others you or puts you less than or oppresses you or or any number of things so that's sort of where my mind is going about that but i would love to hear some of the articles that you pulled yeah it was interesting when you when you just do a google search on what is christian nationalism the first at least five were coming from Christian organizations like the Baptist News and Christianity Today uh-huh. and the United Methodist um, publication. So, I mean, that makes sense. Of course, religious organizations are going to be talking about a religious movement. Sure. But I just thought that was really interesting that that a lot of the critique of it does seem to be coming from within writers speaking directly to Christian audiences. So I appreciated that. Yeah. Hearing that. That's really um, interesting. So so I'm just, yeah, going to read through a few different definitions and some articles that, so there was a man named Andrew Doherty that had an article called Jesus, Trumpism, and Nationalism, the Fake News of a Christian America that was published in the Baptist News Global. And he started out by saying Christian nationalism is the belief that in order to be a true American, one must also be a Christian or more specifically a white evangelical Christian. And I will come to some other definitions, but he went on to say, I thought this was another quote from that particular article, said, it is proving clear the decline of white Christians generally, and he's talking about the number of people who claim who claim to be Christians, and evangelical white Christians in particular, intensifies the rhetoric that America is a Christian nation and galvanizes the white evangelical Christian electorate who fear the loss of cultural privilege and power. Mm, so, fascinating. Yeah. Privilege and power are a big piece. Big piece. If, if we just go to good old Wikipedia, there's a little more direct definition that says Christian nationalists primarily focus on internal politics, such as passing laws that reflect their view of Christianity and its role in political and social life. In countries with state churches, Christian nationalism upholds an anti-disestablishmentarian 
that's a long word that I'm not sure that I've said correctly. I that's another one where I know all the syllables in that, but I don't know that they're all supposed to go to y'all. Anyway, that position in support of furthering the connection between church and state. So that was so interesting since our nation was founded so clearly on a separation of church and state. Right. And we're going to have to get into that. Um, yeah. There's a website called Christians Against Christian Nationalism that had this definition that said Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities. And if, we should have said we are speaking specifically about Christian nationalism in America. That is a very helpful thing. So, um, so again, we love our global listeners and would be fascinated to hear if this is happening in other countries. Yes. Because we are pretty myopically, I think, focused on what's yes. happening here now. So, right. so this is speaking from American perspective. So, again, Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities, distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian nationalism demands Christianity be privileged by the state and implies that to be a good American, one must be Christian. And then to your point that you said earlier, Jill, it often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation. Interesting. There's that privilege word in there again. Yeah. Yeah. And last, just from a from a definition um, standpoint, there was a really interesting article by Reverend Ryan Dunn, and he actually quotes um, someone in this article that that um, defines Christian nationalism. He quotes Dr. Kristen, I'm going to mispronounce this, but Dr. Christian Kobe's Dumez, my apologies to the doctor, author of Jesus and John Wayne, noting that Christian nationalism adheres to the belief that God, that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. So there's a, there's a thread that runs through those. There are a few different slices in each definition. Yeah. But I think they all kind of speak to this idea of what we're talking about. Yes. I would agree. I would agree. There's pieces of each that I would love to unpack. I think for me, it all comes down to how I have conceptualized it in my mind is that people, the Christian nationalists, are want a theocracy. I don't know if they would claim that. I don't. I don't know for sure if that's if I'm even using that word correctly. Sure. But I imagine that it is just that some, that they want a government where Christianity is enforced by the government. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because there are a lot of ways in which this idea of the separation of church and state seemed like a foundational part of the founding fathers, and I'm very intentionally choosing gender language because I think we need to face the fact that the United States of America was founded by white men. So founding fathers yes. is doesn't need to be an inclusive term because it was all a bunch of old white guys or middle-aged white guys. But this separation of church and state because they saw what had happened in England about the ways in which the church and the state were muddled and you know, pick your history lesson about how that was a complicated thing. So it's interesting that there's this movement now that Christianity should be the governing principle of our country and use the word theocracy, that God would be, that religion would be the the ruling principle. And I think about this past election where there was a campaign that I participated in called Vote Your Values. And it was this 
like well thought of belief that we as Americans want to vote with our values, that we were seeing our leaders who might not reflect our particular values. And so we wanted to vote that in. And I would say, not from an objective point of view, because I was part of it, I wouldn't necessarily see that as Christian nationalism. Like, But I also think we want to have our leaders reflect our values. What is the difference between voting our values and putting our leaders in places of power that reflect our values and our morals and our ethics and wanting a theocracy where one religion is specifically, yes, the ruling religion, specifically Christianity. I think that is a great question. And that is something I've pondered on quite a bit that, that we, how I've come up with it in my mind is that we, it's okay to ask for policies from the government that reflect Christian values. And I, even as a Christian, I think it's important to say that many of those values are often also shared by many other religions Preach it. that we, <laughs> that I follow Jesus and, but it's, I'm not going to pretend like he's the only one, the Bible's the only place that says do not murder or, right. you know, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> so those are in be kind to your neighbor and those kind of things. Yeah. So, so there also is that idea that Christianity is the only religion that espouses values. That's certainly not the case. And, but I also think that it's okay to ask for policies that request that reflect your Christian values. Is do we just have to realize those aren't policies that are just for Christians? And that's what seems to be the underlying theme here is that it's not just that Christianity will be the ruling arm, but that it's going to be only for people who fall under that umbrella of Christianity as well. So it's what I believe has really contributed to this unwelcome message that we're sending to people in the rest of the world, that we're sending to refugees, that that not we are sending, but that some policies have been sending about you're not welcome here unless you meet this narrow focus of white evangelical Christian. Right. Well, the ways in which there were policies like the Muslim ban, not bans from a particular country or a particular place, but a particular religion. And so countries that were predominantly Muslim were prohibited from sending people to America, but countries that were predominantly Christian in whatever form their Christianity took, we'll take all of the European immigrants that you want to send, but not so much if you're not Christian, or I would say if your skin is not white. Yeah, it's a way. I, it's a way to to have Christianity not only hold the power, but to be providing a government only for people who agree with that particular aspect of power. Yes, there's an exclusionary nature. Yes, I think that's a really important part in this in this whole idea about Christian nationalism is that there is power and there is privilege for a few to the exclusion of others. So yeah. if you're not Christian. Or I would say if you're not white, Christian, and evangelical, like, for example, you and I, Paula, I would say meet two of those standards. Um, but if you're not white and Christian and evangelical, then you don't get the same benefits as everyone. And it's so interesting, again, getting back to some of the founding principles of our country that we talk about equity for all. 
And yet there's this idea that some would receive the benefits and not all would receive the benefits. And that equity for all was problematic from the very moment it started because it was talked about by a bunch of white men and they didn't think about things as simple as women, of which there were a lot and who are important. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's another just probably side road that we could go on for a while. But, you know, I do want to be really clear here. I love I love this country. I'm not super proud of this country, especially lately with some of the things that have been happening. Um, but I, I love the ideals of this country. And I, but yes, we have to recognize that those ideals were aspirational and were not happening in 1776 and are not happening in 2021. Great. And that we have to continually be reaching for those ideals but the ideals of equality for all and the ideals of separation of church and state are were good ideals and the separation of church and state just you know when we talk about in our podcast a lot a twisting a twisting of how christianity has been twisted and this is a podcast where i think there's been there's two arms that are being twisted here there's the ideals of america because it is american christian nationalism and it is Christianity. So I think we're seeing a twisting together of both of those things. Not to the separation of church and state was to protect both the government from from over been overly influenced by religion and religion from being overly influenced by the state. Yeah. And this is changing both of those. It's it's saying America, you don't really have freedom in America to worship in the way you want to or not worship at all. Right. Right. Well, and I think another side road that we may even turn into in a whole entire other episode is the concept of religious freedom Mm. and how there are many ways in which Christian nationalism and religious freedom sort of are two cars driving alongside the same road and trying to borrow from each other for power and privilege and things like that, which... Yes, and claiming persecution in places where... Christians are not persecuted in this country. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. so yes, that's a whole, that may be a whole nother podcast or we may right. have some overlap here. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to get into some of our categories? Because I think we're going to continue on defining as we talk through these. But. Yeah. So now that we've sort of defined the intersection, let's look at the roads that we're taking to get here. So do you want to start with the mental health road? Yeah. So we wanted to be intentional every week about having a specific mental health road where we look at where our mental health concerns and issues showing up in this topic. And as I considered this, I really thought about kind of three paths or three side roads where we might see mental health concerns coming up when we think about Christian nationalism in America. And one was for those who are who deeply believe in this movement of Christian nationalism, who really want to have this merging of church and state and want to have Christians in power and control for Christians. And so, you know, from a mental health standpoint, what I've seen from people, and some of this is opinion and some of this is, well, I, some of this is opinion. We'll leave it there. But there's often seems to be an underlying anger underneath this mm-hmm. that seems to be driving it that, you know, anger has its purpose in a lot of ways, but prolonged and intense anger, especially that's rooted in bitterness, um, can be really damaging for us emotionally, physically, in every other way. So just kind of examining the emotion that might be driving this. 
some many of my clients who have family members who've dealt with this just describe almost an obsessive quality to it where they're very just caught up in this and that's all they can think about and it, it truly becomes a ruminating obsession which is also not super mentally healthy that persecution complex that i just alluded to sure <laughs> but but often it's driven this idea of christian nationalism driven because they feel like Christians are in trouble in this country. Christians are being persecuted in this country. Um, when it's actually most of the time not that Christians are being persecuted. It is that that phrase that we've used before, when you're used to privilege, equality can feel like oppression. Yes. <laughs> so when you're told we really shouldn't mandate a specific prayer in school from the school leaders, it was never, you can't play, pray in schools. Anyone can pray in a school. No one's taking away your right to pray in a school. But if you're going to have a mandated prayer in school, then you really should have perhaps an Islamic prayer and a Hindu prayer and a Jehovah's Witness prayer and all kinds of other prayers if sure. you're going to mandate it in a public school. Right. But it was never taking away prayer in schools. Uh-huh. Like that's that's one of, we'll have, we could have a whole other episode on that. But this persecution complex mm-hmm. of people are out to get me, the government's out to get me, is often driving this. So some, some paranoia, um, some mental health possible ex- explanations for people who might get caught up in this is that this movement can create a sense of belonging, you know, for people who maybe are looking for a place to belong, a place to have purpose, a place to feel like they're making a difference in the world. This can create that for some people. So that could be a driving force to have a shared passion and a shared experience. Um, so that's one path. And jump in here at any point if you have thoughts. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by it all. Keep talking. Um, and, you know, I don't know, just for any counselors that might be listening, I don't know how many of these clients are going to show up in our offices. Um, certainly we may be, you know, when I was working in the hospital, certainly – I might encounter someone who had some of these beliefs in a more likely way than I think. And maybe this is stereotyping and I shouldn't, I should check myself for that of whether or not someone with these beliefs would walk into my office willingly seeking therapy. But then there's also the road of how loved ones of people who have kind of these really strong Christian nationalistic views are when they don't share that view and how they're dealing with these loved ones. So perhaps a separation of the relationship or just a frustration at feeling like they they can't talk to them anymore, that there's walls up and they're always arguing with people. There may be grief at the loss of these relationships. They may actually feel abused by these relationships by not being heard or by be, having their concerns dismissed. Um, so... You know, some thoughts about how to deal with this. There's a few different, if you are, if you are someone who finds yourself in this situation, I think there's a few potential paths. You could, you know, I've almost heard, I've heard some therapists talk about perhaps treating the other person like you would, um, I've heard treat someone like you would if the person was in a cult. And I think there's a lot of overlapping. That's fascinating. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how fair that is, but I think there's definitely some characteristics that overlap. Mm-hmm. And then there also may be some ways to think about how you would tra- treat a friend in an abusive relationship. Because often the point of that is to isolate you, get you out of their, you know. So if we think of Christian nationalism as like the abuser who's trying to suck this person in and isolate them and cut them off from their support or other voices or other things that might challenge that. 
you know, the, what I often say to friends of people in abusive relationships is to, if, if you're able to safely try to stay in their life and just don't let yourself get cut off, you know? So that might mean taking down some of the adversarial rhetoric, but still being a presence in their life, reflecting like this relationship is really important to you versus that guy's a complete jerk and you should get away from him <laughs> because that kind of, that what is what creates that separation and that wall between you and the person. But if you remain a presence so that if the person is ready to leave that relationship, you're there for them and they, they don't feel like they have nowhere to go once they're there. So kind of if you have someone who's waded into the Christian nationalism place, just is there a way to remain a presence in their life and take down the adversarial rhetoric so that if they ever want to have a conversation about this or they start having questions about, is this the best thing to attach myself to? You're there to have that conversation. So that's one possibility. My gosh, it is so fascinating to me to look at the relationship of Christian nationalism as an abusive relationship. Like that's such a helpful lens to think about it in that, in, in the same way that we would pick apart and analyze an abusive relationship to pick apart the idea of Christian nationalism. That's a really helpful lens to me. You're awesome. <laughs> well, I, I don't take complete credit for that, but it has been helpful for some clients as well, just to think and to, and to see the person in maybe a different way and take a little bit of the, the anger out of that. Yeah. Having said that, there's another path where if this relationship is just not healthy for you in any way and it's incredibly toxic, there's also nothing wrong with setting boundaries and eliminating people from your life that are not good for you. You you don't have to, you know, it's not your job to save someone else, mm-hmm. you know. So there's figuring out that balance of being supportive and available and taking care of yourself and not getting sucked into something that's going to be damaging for you as well. So setting boundaries around the time that you spend with people, setting boundaries about what communication topics you're willing to discuss, setting boundaries around just having a relationship with someone, all okay. You have permission to do that. Right? (laughs) Yeah. And if you do that, you know, allow yourself to grieve the loss of that relationship because even an unhealthy relationship is a loss when you lose it. That Um, is important. One of the really helpful things that was shared with me at one point in time is when dealing with um, relationships or family members that you feel like is is toxic, but also feel like you still need to have some kind of a relationship is almost having a script of, of being able to say, this is how I'm going to respond if I hear a racist joke, or this is how I'm going to respond. And, you know, easy ways to change the subject. I know my partner's favorite thing to do is to talk about snow. <laughs> like no matter what time of year it is, if something comes up that we feel like we are the different point of view at the discussion table. We will talk about living in Michigan for a huge period of time and having lots of snow on the ground and like sort of just like changing the subject really fast, which is a a little side road to go down. But having that tool in your tool belt of that script that you can go to so you're talking about something else and moving on to. Yeah, that's awesome to have some things pre-planned so you don't have to think about them. And often too, you can use what we may have talked about already in this podcast, um, the broken record technique, where have we talked about this in earlier episodes? Know if we have. Say, so, say more. So it's basically for those of you who are too young, but albums have come back, so maybe they will get this reference. <laughs> the record is a big black CD <laughs> that has grooves in it that's played 
on a thing with a needle. I hope that's not too patronizing. <laughs> well, I just, I've said this to my class several times this semester as we've been on using Zoom more than other things. I'm just becoming aware of how many of my jokes and references, as I make a reference to the Brady Bunch squares in Zoom, and then I think, Maybe not everyone knows they don't know what, the what the Brady, Brady Bunch, Bunch is. <laughs> yes. So I'm trying to be more aware of, of my age and how that might. Anyway, so I'm assuming their records have made a comeback. But there is a thing where when they get a scratch in them, it, we call it a broken record. And it just keeps replaying the same little snippet over and over and over again. And so if you have uncomfortable conversations or conversations you need to set a boundary in, just get one or two phrases that you can say over and over and over again. And it can be, I'm not going to talk about that now. What would you like to talk about? I'm not going to talk about that now. What would you like to talk about? Yeah. I'm not going to talk about that now. And so you, but so the thing is people are going to, People who've been used to being able to push over your boundaries will keep trying Mm -hmm. until you've said it enough for them to understand, okay, this really is a harder line than it has been in the past. So so a broken record can just be a few phrases that you literally just keep repeating or walk away if you're having to. But the third kind of impact of mental health um, that I think is really important for us to discuss, because these first two speak mostly to white Christians or people who are white Christian adjacent in some way that they either are involved in this movement or they have friends and family, which often means that we you are also um, a place of privilege. But the mental health impact on people who are impacted by this movement. Yeah. Um, so sometimes people of color, people of other religions, people who are not no no religion Mm -hmm. just not the dominant who don't fit into that white evangelical demographic that is pushing this and so there's just there's no quantifying the mental health impact of living in fear so this fear of their safety a constant kind of code switching and being aware of who they are and what identity they're putting forth code switching is this idea of who you are in one setting and then having to maybe switch to the identity or the way you talk or those kind of things um, in a different setting. And so people who are not part of the dim- of the dominant culture often have to, or the culture with privilege, even if it's not dominant in other ways, but the culture cultural aspect with privilege often have to just be careful about what aspects of their identity and personality. So it's exhausting to constantly think about can I talk about being a different religion or not, or being an atheist in this? Um, how is this going to impact me getting a job or having a friend or, you know, just how people are going to look at me? So really just not feeling safe. Their voice is not being heard. They're, this whole movement telling them that they're less than, that they're not as valued in this country, yeah. that they're not important in this country. When you hear that message over and over and over again, it's hard to not believe it. Or it's hard to, it's exhausting to keep trying to push back at that. So we see that in our earlier discussions about the white privilege and that kind of thing. But that also shows up in this religious privilege here that we're talking about. Sure. Well, and I can imagine, too, in that, that third path that you're talking about, if you see policies that are starting to come forward that are going to oppress you in some way, differently than the whole the government is going to tell me what I can do and 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 sort of um, control you but if a if a policy is coming into place that says we are going to privilege and prioritize and give power to 
people who agree with us. So bakeries, you can't bake a wedding cake for a gay couple that's getting married. I would imagine that a gay couple looking to get married and wanting a wedding cake, that's going to cause some mental health distress because they're going to have to pick which bakeries they go to and their identity and all of the things that goes into that, that caused some pretty significant mental health distress. Yeah, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to not be in a place of privilege and all these other things that you have to think about. And, you know, I'm just thinking of people I know who are in the DACA program and just how I have been able to watch those court cases more recently with just kind of a curious eye. But these are people who who's literally where they live and being with their family is going to be impacted by these decisions. And the relief that I've seen just visible in physical ways and just the emotional toll that takes on you to constantly wonder if the government is going to um, oppress you in some way. And I think it's just really hard to separate out that Christian nationalism is trying to be a government of oppression or at least of exclusion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, I don't know that those are really all that different, but, you know, and it's interesting too how, how this feeling of people who've been impacted, this group who've been impacted by a Christian national nationalistic movement and who are having to constantly worry about their safety or hiding their identities, how this can contribute to this polarization and this tribalism because they may seek out safe spaces and really start to build up walls between them and everyone else, which just pushes us all into our separate corners even more. Right. And I can't blame, you know, anyone for that, for, you know, someone who's an atheist not wanting to talk to someone who's a Christian. Sure. But it's not what I want as a Christian, but yeah. I can't blame them. So so I'm sure there's many more, but those were the, the mental health, the ways this could impact someone's mental health. And this is just such a really obvious intersection of this Christian movement that can really impact mental health on a multitude of levels. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think about the the other road in the intersection of, of, of religion and spirit, a road of religion and spirituality. There is a very obvious tie-in. We're talking about Christianity. This is Christian nationalism. It's so this right is, there in the title. It's right there in the title. It's raising the ideals of, I would like to say, a particular brand, a particular line or way of thinking within Christianity. And there are a number of pieces that go into that that are problematic. Y'all have heard me talk about the idea of proof texting before, which is where scripture is taken out of context and used to accomplish your own purposes. So I think Christian nationalism is wrought with proof texting because there are a lot of ways in which I already can tell that what I'm about to say is going to be problematic. <laughs> there are a lot of ways Bring it, in which you can make the Bible say whatever you want. Because there are a variety of perspectives. And we can like rewind way, 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 way back into understanding that our sacred text, what we call the Bible, is a library. It's a collection of writings that have been written over a period of centuries by different men, by different perspectives for different audiences. There's different layers of interpretation that go into it. So something that was written during the Babylonian exile is going to sound different than something that was written during the Roman oppression. 
So there are lots of ways in which Christian nationalism picks out particular parts of scripture. One of the things that I see a lot of in Christian nationalism is this idea of being chosen. Hmm. And it hurts my heart so much because I love the idea that we are God's people. And I take out that we are God's chosen people. But there's a whole narrative that's threaded through the Hebrew Bible, and particularly some people call it the Old Testament, of this idea that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel are God's chosen people, that God picked certain people. And you hear the word chosen to mean the the choosing of some to the exclusion of others. And that's where I see the twisting and the and the problematic nature of this because we don't understand that God can choose everybody. And that's something that I believe that God does. God chooses everyone. But this idea that we are a chosen people, that we are privileged to be God's chosen ones and the other people who disagree with us or the other people who were not chosen by God need to suffer even more. Not only are they not chosen by God, but they're not going to get all the privileges that come with being chosen by God. So that's a, a, a difficult way to understand that whole chosen nature. And that is also a thread that comes in the New Testament when we talk about the difference between the Gentiles and the Jews. There's a lot of times when Jesus talks about all of these different peoples that are, are threaded through as though the inclusion of the Gentiles into this idea was this wild idea that more than one people could be chosen. And that Jesus was so radical <laughs> in so was many ways. So radical. And that was incredibly radical. The opening up. The opening up and that everybody's everybody is a part of things. So that that proof texting and that taking of God God chose us. I think another way that you've already alluded to a little bit is this idea of exceptionalism and persecution. That when thing when when someone does not agree with me entirely, that I am being persecuted. And so to say because I own a bakery and I don't agree with the choices of people who want to have a same gendered union, I should not have to bake a wedding cake for them. The government allowing other people to make wedding cakes for people who want to be part of a same gendered union are that's that's the government's going too far and my views are being oppressed and therefore I am being oppressed. So I think that thread runs through and there's an idea, I think, in evangelical Christianity in particular, that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. That we are going to suffer, that we're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake. And this idea that Jesus suffered and so we're going to suffer. And so all of the ways in which the culture is saying, oh no, we're not, you know, Christian nationalism and this is bad and we need to be more pluralistic and we need to be more open-minded and we need to be more inclusive. Well, that's the bad culture of getting away from the nature of saying, you know, no, we're God's chosen people. And the ways in which um, we're being persecuted, well, that just falls in line with what Jesus had to go through. So Jesus suffered and we're going to suffer too. 
And see that that in the world and not of the world. I just I always have interpreted that. That's that's fascinating to me to hear that interpretation of it because for me it's always been just not getting dragged into worldly values, meaning more materialistic things or um, or even just recognizing kind of more of an eternal meaning around life versus getting caught up in like I have to live in this world now sure but this is not kind of like there's more to me than this world I'm not of this world yeah but this idea that like being in the world but not of the world is there's an exceptionalism it's Ah, there is a privilege okay. to the persecution that I am I am better than this world. Yes. Okay. Exactly. That. That's fascinating. That's so interesting to hear how I would say that is really twisted. Because it's not a, I'm so much better than this world. There is just a, there is more to you than this world. Like this world is, is kind of your physical surroundings but there's more to you than that sure interesting yeah Yeah. I think the other thing that I as as we're traveling down this religion and spirituality road what I found fascinating that I came across is that Christian nationalism does not have a direct tie to like a religious commitment or spiritual Mm -hmm. involvement so everyone's going to define that in their own way but for my context, I think about in in Christianity, you're part of a Christian community. You're connected to something. Maybe it's a congregation like ours. Maybe it's a, a, a different kind of community or something like that. But being a Christian nationalist does not seem to say that you also need to practice. It's mm-hmm. I'm going to talk the talk, but I don't necessarily have to walk the walk, which makes me mad. <laughs> Well, it's all, you know, this is a whole other category that we have about who's driving and the power and control. But if we can just, I think, leap ahead into that category a little bit for this, that's what it's about. It's not, in my experience, about exploring the teachings of Christ and saying, how can we use these to influence government and make life better for everyone? It's how can I use government to gain control? And from the government perspective, how can I use religion to gain control? And Christianity happens to be the religion of privilege in America. So that's the religion that's being used to gain control. But I have no doubt that a lot of these politicians who are using Christianity to gain control, if there were a different religion of privilege right right now, they would hitch their wagon to that very quickly. Yeah. Okay, maybe let's move on to our next category where we look at what we're calling roadblocks. So these are those places where really we feel like Christianity or scripture or theology is getting twisted to in ways that are causing harm um, or in this case where we feel like perhaps patriotism is getting twisted sure. yeah. as well. But, you know, because this ties into what you were just saying about the the religion path, uh, the religion path that's leading to that intersection. Because I think from a Christian standpoint, where what really bugs me about this movement more than anything is that it just seems like it's threatened. It's just so threatened by the idea of true religious freedom. Yes. And like a secure faith is not threatened by other religions. You know, a true, I just, I don't understand 
feeling so threatened and insecure about your faith that you need the government (laughs) to enforce it. Right. Well, I think it is what we've maybe mentioned before. It's expecting the government to do the church's job. Yeah. Yeah. And and this this idea that what the government says has to be the case for all. There's a, a particular example that I think about. Um, so in the Presbyterian Church USA, a number of years ago, the denomination was really struggling with how to define marriage. And our General Assembly, the decision-making body for our whole denomination, would meet and they would consider these motions and these amendments and things to our denominational constitution And in the process of considering how to define marriage or in the process of considering uh, the standards of ordination, who was eligible for ordination and how they were ordained, the decision was made to open up that definition of marriage and to open up those ordination standards. And the way that someone explained it to me so beautifully was that the book of order and the denomination's constitution was meant to build a framework wherein each of the individual churches and presbyteries and even individual people in those congregations could make their own determination. So just because you could ordain someone who identified in the LGBTQIA plus community did not mean that you had to ordain someone who identified in the LGBTQIA plus community. Or just because you could decide to bless the union of a same-gendered, same-sex couple in your sanctuary did not mean that you had to do it, but the opportunity was being given. And so I think about that, expecting the government to do the job of the church in a similar way, sort of that these Christian nationalistic policies are saying not you could do it this way, but you must do it this way, or you should do it this way, and that there's that oppressive nature to it because it's a power and a control narrative. It has to be this way. It's not, well, you could, you could, to keep using the wedding cake analogy, you could bake a wedding cake for someone, but you don't have to bake a wedding cake for someone. Yeah, and this, you use the word control, and I know I keep coming back to that, but I think that's so very present in this whole idea that that in the presence of control is the absence of trust. You know, that you're not trusting people in America to make decisions for themselves. It's this idea that I have to force you to do this. I have yeah. to control. How Say you're that doing. again. Say that again because I think it's really important. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the presence of control is the absence of trust. That's so I, fascinating. I must control you rather than trust you and give you the freedom to think of this yourself. Yeah. So and I just think back to to even God God never did this. Like even back to the Garden of Eden, whether you take that literally or metaphorically, there was there was still the option of to eat from the tree of knowledge sure you know there was yes. still this like i am not going to make you robots and make you i'm still going to give you a level of decision making on your own and so this idea that the government has to dictate your faith you know i mean that sounds great when it's dictating your particular faith the way you've decided to do but if you give the government that much power man sooner or later it's going to turn on the way you want to worship and the way you want to believe. Right. Isn't there a, a really famous quote and 
God love it. I cannot figure out who said it, but someone who says like, I don't agree with what you have to say, but I'm going to fight like hell so that you can yeah. say what well, you want to say. I think it was, it's, my husband could tell us much more about this. My husband, former military, could, because I, in my mind, that's grounded in kind of a soldier's mentality of, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will die defending your right to say it. Yeah, that's, and, you said that better than I did. <laughs> um, and that's the, I mean, that's the trust of, right. and, and that's like, I am not threatened by having a neighbor who's a Muslim. Like that does not threaten my Christianity. And if it does, that might be time to, to think about the foundation of your Christianity and yeah. like why that is, why is that so threatening? And why do we feel like that the government needs to have more control over people's bodies or people's beliefs or how they manage? Like, I very much appreciate that I could go to school and say prayer. I don't want it dictated to me what prayer I have to say. Sure. That's a trust that I can pray for myself instead of a teacher praying for me. Yeah. And to me, that's so much more powerful and such a more powerful statement of my faith when I'm choosing to do that in that setting. Right. Well, and if we think about the roadblock of control, isn't it fascinating that control seems to exist to the exclusion of freedom. Mm. And freedom is such an important piece of our identity as Americans, I think. Like Yeah. You know, like That's yes. That's what when I say the 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 patriotism gets twisted and the Christianity gets twisted. Right. Right. That we that we tout this freedom loving country. I mean, like it would be fascinating to me to go through an election or something in this country and do a word count of how many times you know, we love, you know, freedom loving or to look at, you know, the PACs or the, the organizations that contribute lots of money and to see where the word freedom is ingrained in that. Because control and freedom don't seem to don't be... seem like they go together. Uh, you know, meshing. I'm control sure should be a threat to freedom. Right. But freedom is a threat to control. Yes, it is. But to me, just a tie of government and God, the exact opposite of the separation of church and state, which our country was founded on. Our country was founded by people fleeing, being forced to believe a certain way and participate in a certain religious way of living. Yeah. And now to say that, I don't, okay. So anyway, that's. <laughs> right. Well, so another roadblock that I would see is the ways in which. I mentioned this on the religion road, the ways in which scripture or a piece of particular theology is used to be exclusionary or to justify a particular civic action or a particular way of engaging with with the community. I think about a particular time, uh, we might even have referred to this in the podcast before, but uh, one of the former attorney generals used some mm -hmm. words from scripture from Romans chapter 13 to justify the way that immigration was being handled. That was a particular time. I think it was June of 2017 or 2018, maybe 2018 when, um, when children were being separated from their parents with that zero tolerance immigration policy. And Romans 13 was, you know, taught it out and quoted, and there's tons of articles. And of course, in, in my professional circles of religious leaders, everybody was like losing their minds, like, oh my gosh, what do we need to do? And bless the attorney general's heart for making that quote on a Thursday. So we all had to rewrite our <laughs> sermons on Friday to deal with it. Um, I don't know how many people did that, but um, 
it's fascinating to see the ways in which that particular piece of scripture was pulled out of context. And when you went one verse later than what that particular attorney general was saying, it talked about ruling with love and leading with love and acting in love and personal bias. I don't see how separating children from their parents could be loving um, in the context of immigration in any way, shape or form. Sidebar. Well, and that's I was actually just thinking how this goes ahead and steps into one of our other segments, which I think we're calling our road rage segment or our little <laughs> soapbox segment. Yes. But I was just thinking the same thing is, isn't it interesting how you referred to earlier the ties to white nationalism and, and just, we've mentioned several times the overlap of areas of privilege. And isn't it interesting how the aspects of quote Christianity that are being put forth by people who are Christian nationalists are not the aspects of Christianity like welcome the refugee. Yeah. Or love all of thy neighbors. Like right. neighbor in the largest sense of, right. of the word. And feed the hungry. Yeah. Protect the vulnerable. Care for the widow and the orphan. Which, which was are said also by Jesus. Christian values. Yeah. Yeah. It's in it's in the Torah. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It's in sacred texts in the Islamic faith. It's in the New Testament. So let's just let's just point that out there. But that's a little <laughs> bit more of a universal truth than some Christians would like to say. Protect the vulnerable. Yeah. And I just would also throw out as one of my little roadblocks here that I, where I think Christianity is being twisted is just Jesus never used the government for anything but his death. Like Jesus did not need the government to spread his message and to make disciples and to talk to groups of people. And so I also don't understand just this. Well, I do understand it's all about power and control. But the using of the Bible and Christianity to tie to politics and to say that, but that's where we see it happen, is politicians use Christianity because it gives them power. Yep. And Christian leaders use politics because it gives them power. Yeah. And yeah. so that, so just caution there. I do think that's a little roadblock. Well, I think that there are many ways in which we can read scripture and have an understanding of the type of community that Jesus was a part of in the first century. And if we make those comparisons, America is a whole lot closer to the Roman oppressors than they are to the first century Jesus following Jews that were trying to follow the ideals. And that's problematic for a lot of people because there are many ways in which we create a hero's narrative out of the gospels where Jesus is the hero and Rome is the bad guy. And I think that there are ways in which America is Rome, which means we're the bad guys. And that is hard to hear. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling up my Instagram, my Dr. Paula Swindle Instagram, because I think I have posted something along those lines. I have I I'm terrible at Instagram. I don't post a whole lot. But I think this is really interesting. I'm just gonna read this is a quote from Erna Kim Hackett which I think speaks to the same kind of thing, that white Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. Yes. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They're Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They're Peter, never Jesus. They're the, they are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisee. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. 
and this is where I, what made me think of what you're saying. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when discussing scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. I love that. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. It's made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice and some very weak Bible work. So for America to continually put ourselves in in the position of being oppressed, which white nationalists do, like, again, this persecution complex, rather than the oppressor. Sure. Yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about this power and control, which I think might lead to another segment, but don't let me jump there if you've got more roadblocks. But who's driving? What are we talking about with power and control here? Yeah, we decided this was should be an ongoing segment because this shows up in so many instances of harm as someone seeking power or manipulating power or using power to manipulate and regaining control. And yeah, I mean, Christian nationalism is all about wanting Christians to retain power, Yep, to be in power, which is so opposite of the early church and of Jesus. And You know, Jesus gained power, but I never saw Jesus seeking power. Sure. And I think it's important to say a particular kind of Christian. A particular kind of Christian is getting these benefits and and receiving these benefits. And a particular kind of Christian is, is in power. Because there are, I would say, I don't see the kind of Christianity, the kind of Jesus follower that I hope to be reflected in, in some leaders. And there's this exclusion that we, I see it a lot in Christian nationalism in the same way that people say, well, we're going to follow this part of Jesus, but we're not going to follow this part of Jesus. I think people look at our leaders in the same way that they looked at the 45th president of the United States who claimed this Christian nationalist viewpoint of, of pushing Christianity and ignored a whole lot of other parts of that 45th president's life and the other words that he spoke and the other agendas that he pushed, which didn't align with the principles of Christianity. And so there was this this willful neglect and ignorance of what's going on. And so people will look at another leader and say, well, that leader's not Christian because that leader doesn't agree with me on this particular point. And that's so problematic because there is such a multitude of beliefs about Christianity that there's, even if we just delve into the Protestant faiths, like we have here in the town where we live, Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches and Baptist churches and Lutheran churches, and we all go about worshiping in slightly different ways. Um, You've talked before about being raised Baptist and me being raised as a Presbyterian and Reformed Christian and understanding Lent differently or understand that that season of, you know, that leads up to Easter or understanding the celebration of the sacraments differently. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of diversity in there. And it's fascinating to me that there are people out there who will say, I want a leader that agrees with me on these things. And the idea is that agrees with me on 100% of these things. But then there's this willful ignorance that, oh, we don't agree on this part, but I'm still going to put my entire life and breath and all that I have behind supporting you, even when there might be some pretty key things that are that are disagreed upon. 
Well, and that's, you know, I don't throw this word around lightly, but that's kind of the cultish aspect of this movement and the way politics has become involved in this movement is this idea of unquestioning loyalty to one figure or to one party. Yes. And, you know, both parties have used religion and Christianity to curry favor and to gain voters. So certainly, you know, there's politics is messy all across the board. Yes. And you know, there's certain to use the example of of abortion. And we're not going to get into kind of the that particular topic, but that's such a hot button political topic to where you can say you're against abortion and no other aspect of anything Jesus said and that's un- but your loyalty is there unquestionably there for this one aspect of things and so you know this idea that you can't question a leader or that you have to vote a party line no matter what that you if this if this has a certain letter beside the name i have to vote for this politician um without really as we say thinking just making you think right which is such a driving power and control narrative that you can't ask any questions that there is this expectation that once you have been put in power and once you have been given that control it, it's unquestionable it's undeniable um, I think about a, a particular point of view that I would label as Christian nationalist which is whomever is elected to office is the person that God chose and therefore needs to not be questioned and not be support needs to be given unconditionally. And it is fascinating to me the ways in which the people who share that point of view were very willing to unquestionably support the 45th president and are unwilling to support the 46th president. And if you hear some judgment and some bias in my voice, you know, it's there. It's there. I do have a bias. Yeah, I can't but, be objective. But I think it's, a, I mean, but it's, that's a question to ask, like, why, why is it such easy acceptance of this person in leadership and not this person? If that is your belief that whoever there is ordained by God, I tend to look more at the freedom God gives us. And, sure. and so, right. but if that is your belief, then truly just examine why that is so true with one party and not as true with another party. I think it's also really important when we talk about who is driving for us to identify ourselves as we've done before and will continue to do is that we do speak from a place of power and a place of place of privilege. Mm-hmm. We are white people. We are we do ascribe to be followers of Jesus and ascribe to a particular kind of Christianity, which while it may not be what we would describe as that sort of Christian nationalism, evangelical Christian nationalism, there's there's some power that we have that is not ascribed to people who are not white or people who do not ascribe to Christianity. And that's coloring the way that this discussion is going to, you know, play out. So For you sure. referred to it in your in your mental health road about the ways in which people of color are oppressed by this idea and people who do not fit the narrative of being Christian are oppressed by this narrative. And I think we just need to drive that home really importantly, that the ways in which Christian nationalism oppresses people that are not Christian and people that are not white 
is a huge means of power and control. Because it's not just you don't agree with me, but you don't look like me and you don't think like me. And therefore, you're not going to get the power and the privilege that I have. And I think that's why we feel so strongly about our responsibility to speak up about these things and why I think every Christian should feel some responsibility to speak up about the things that are being done in the name of Christ yeah, and the way that Christ is being represented in the world and in our nation and in politics and really examining, is that the Christ of the Bible or is that the Christ of power and control? And, and, you know, just thinking about that, but, but that's what we should do with our privilege is use it to examine these systems that we're a part of because we're a part of an oppressive system. Like yes. we have to own that and recognize that. And with that power comes the responsibility to say, what do we need to do to dismantle the oppressive part of this yes. and to create space for other people's views to be seen and heard. Out of the sacred wisdom of both scripture and the prophet Stan Lee, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So you started to talk about it a little bit. Um, What would you say are some U-turns and the ways that you hope that, you know, people can turn around, can recover from these roadblocks and head in a different direction? You know, I think, yes, we have already touched on it, but a big one for me is holding our leaders responsible for carrying out their oaths to their faith and to their country. And so, I mean, when I say leaders, I mean both our religious leaders and our political leaders. And, you know, letting both of them them know if there are things where you feel like they're twisting things or where they're going, hitting that roadblock or doing things like that. So if, if you have a political leader that supposedly represents you and is twisting your faith, then make your voice known. I call, I call and leave messages in my representative's office in the middle of the night all the time just to fill up their voicemail box and to just make sure that they hear me and that they hear this voice about, if you're representing me, this is what I'd like you to say. I love that. Um, but also to hold our religious leaders responsible for, I don't ever want to hear a pastor endorse a political candidate from the pulpit. Yes. I don't, I've never heard you do that. And if you do that, I will ask you why you're doing that. Right. Because, you know, earlier when we were talking about control being a lack of trust and that those can't really exist together. Yes. That's kind of the ultimate control. If a pastor is telling their congregation how to vote, that's an ultimate lack of trust in their ability to make up their own mind and to and to say that you trust them to make their own decisions about things like that, it shows you feel like you have to control. Right, right. Because in the in a perfect world of U-turns, pastors as religious and other religious leaders give you all of the information and then trust you to make the best decision that you can based on all the information that you've been given. I would think in the same way that like teachers and professors give their students all of the information they can and then trust them to study and do what they can so they can pass the test and then become good professionals at whatever they've been taught to do. Yeah. So exactly. I also think it's really fascinating if we look at a particular piece of American legislation around this topic, which is the Johnson Amendment. It's a piece of tax code 
that uh, governs how a 501c3 status or a tax-exempt status. Which most churches are. Right. Most churches are nonprofit organizations, and we could go down a whole side road about churches that gain profit and all of the ways in which that's problematic. But this idea that the Johnson Amendment puts forth, which says that a religious leader cannot use their power to influence or to endorse a particular political candidate because one of the benefits of not having to pay taxes, of being tax exempt, is to, to not try and influence election. So I there are a couple of things that I find interesting. One is that there's legislation put out there that says that religious leaders have power. Mm. It's right it's in that. It's a recognition. It's a recognition in our American legislation that there is this power that religious leaders have to influence their their flock, their congregation, yeah. their followers in, in whatever way, shape, or form that takes. So I think that's a really important piece. And this idea of just what you were saying, that you can't trust people to do a particular thing. And you have to look at the wholeness of an entire person. You can't, you know, by by endorsing a candidate, you're not endorsing this one particular policy. You're ind- endorsing their whole position as a candidate. So what happens if that candidate decides to change their position on the issue? Or what happens if the candidate votes in a different way or is, is not supportive in, in the same way that as constituents we want to hold our civic leaders accountable as religious leaders we also need to be held held accountable for acting in the best interests of yeah the people who we've been charged to care for it is really interesting that this code like the a government branch recognized religion needs to stay out of this and so many religious people would say we want the government to stay out of our stuff as well and yet christian nationalism is just this ultimate conflation of these two things and right. doing kind of the exact opposite of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So that's one of my U-turns, though, is that our responsibility to hold our leaders responsible for what they're saying and how they are influencing and how they're using, how political leaders and religious leaders are using each other for power and control and to call that out when you see it. Um, what are some U-turns? Well, I think I've already referred to this a couple of times, but a big U-turn for me is that those of us who are white and those of us who proclaim, profess to be followers of Jesus or to ascribe to this um, idea of Christianity, that we really do a lot of self-examination about the ways in which we use and understand our power and our privilege, even if if we are not afforded power in in the way that we're used to thinking about it. But there's a privilege that I have as a white woman who follows Jesus that's not afforded to someone who's not white or who doesn't follow Jesus in the same way that I follow Jesus. So I think, um, you know, in particular, one of the ways I think about it is that there is a way in which we yield power being in the southeastern part. We're in western North Carolina, and there's a way in which religion and spirituality has power here that it doesn't in other parts of the country. And that's just another layer of trying to understand my own privilege and my own power. And I happen to believe as a follower of Jesus that that's something that that Jesus demands of us, that God demands of us, that we use our privilege and power for good 
to care for the vulnerable and the widow and the orphan and to love our neighbors and to love ourselves and to recognize the ways in which all of the people that we meet are created by God and bear God's image and God's essence. And that fighting for true equality is not the same thing as maintaining power. Yeah. That when maintaining power at all costs becomes the focus, that is kind of that ultimate twisting. Yeah, and I would say maybe connected to that, a U-turn that I would love to see and is just this idea of Christians quit expecting the government to do our work. Preach it. Just quit expecting the government to, to be the evangelical peace or to be the morality. Let the church do the work. That's what we've been called to do. Right. <laughs> and we want the freedom to do that. Yeah. And it is going to be some work. And there is going to be some upsetting of the status quo, which is uncomfortable for the people who have that privilege and have that power. You said it earlier in the episode that when you're privileged and in power, that equity can feel a lot like oppression. There's another one. I really want it in a t-shirt and it has something to do with pie. It's it's something like equal rights for others doesn't mean fewer rights for you. It's not pie. Exactly. Which is like a piece of pie, not the number pie, just to get our images <laughs> images straight. There like are talking about out there. We're talking about <laughs> pizza and or fruit or chocolate, sweet delicacy, bakery, patisserie, <laughs> pie. Which is if you like that image is so powerful to say like if you take a slice of pie out, then there is less for everyone else. And equal rights for everyone is not that because we grant I, I know I keep going back to this idea about marriage, and I I hope that at some point in time, I know we have it in the in the plans to do an episode about marriage, but this the, the Christian nationalism point of view that says that defining marriage between a man and a woman is essential because any other definition of marriage ruins the idea of marriage for all, which is just... <sighs> My, it's not pie. My heterosexual marriage is not threatened by a gay marriage. Yeah. It's just, it's it's an absurd statement. Exactly. And it's another just example of why is this so threatening to you? It's that idea of threatening. That's, I would say that is another U-turn for me is this embrace and this idea that we are secure in the faith that we have that it's okay to ask questions of our religious leaders and it's okay to question our religious leaders and our civic leaders. And it's okay for a Muslim church to have just as much right to worship as we have to worship. Right. Questioning is good. You've, you've said before about all the ways in which your dad told you to question everything, which I love. For me, in, in my upbringing, it was always the way my dad framed that verse about scripture about working out your salvation, that working out what it is that you believe, asking lots of questions and determining that that's a good thing, that we should yeah. allow people to question how their faith is being played out and how their civic responsibility is reflected in their leaders and and civil rights, yeah. equal rights. And don't look, what's underneath that is not looking for easy answers. You know, when, when, when someone says America should be a Christian nation and you're a Christian, then it, that might feel comfortable to you. And you might go, yeah, America should be a Christian nation. But to really think about what does that mean? What does that look like? What plays out if that really happens? How many freedoms get taken away yeah. if 
there's a Christian government in place. Those kind of things. Doesn't mean Christians can't be in government. Doesn't mean Christians can't influence government. Sure. But that theocracy is not what I'm looking for. And I guess kind of the ultimate U-turn for me would be just this willingness to have conversations and work together again. Instead of attaching religion to a particular political party or a particular political leader to just have some willingness to to kind of look at what we need to do for the good of our entire nation yeah that an openness to listening which i think maybe could probably probably be applied in in every u-turn of every episode of listen and have stop siloing ourselves into you know, you have to think like me and you have to agree with me and together we're going to form our own little community. And that's a very natural thing. I think I'm sure there's a mental health piece about that, about assimilating and and surrounding yourselves with people who are going to make you feel safe, who are going to not challenge what you believe and not challenge who you are and that, that there's a way. Yeah, there's just a natural tendency to seek out things that reinforce what you already believe. Sure. And it's and so it's easy to, you know, we all have these mental filters. And, you know, the point of a filter is to let some things through and to keep some things out. And the things that come through more easily are the things that are already there. And to let other things in is going to have to create some different holes in that filter. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So one of our last segments I thought we would jump into is this idea about billboards, about the things that are going on in the world, current events, um, maybe influences from pop, pop culture, whether that's movies or televisions or books or other kinds of... What you're seeing along the road. Yeah, a billboard. And I think it's really important for us to say that the events of January 6th here in the United States of America were and are one of the driving forces behind the timing of this episode. Um, And we've literally been spending a month sort of putting this episode together and thinking about what goes into it and praying about it and how to present it. And so that in and of itself, the events of January 6th, we're referring to the riots at the Capitol, the, the insurrection. I know there's some... Uh, that people have feelings about the terms that we use to describe those events. It is important to me that we recognize that those events, that there were people at those events that were purporting ideas of Christian nationalism. And we sort of started to allude to it. Some of you may have seen that we put out a, a sort of official response to the episodes, specifically referring to pictures that we saw of the news coverage of a flag being flown that was a Jesus flag. And I just, you brought something up about that particular image that we saw that was really fascinating to me, was that this Jesus flag that was being flown was red and black and had this sort of allusion to a swastika. If you saw it out of the corner of your eye, that's sort of what I thought it was. Yeah. It felt like a Nazi symbol. Yeah. And all of the ways in which these... It was not. I do want to be clear. It was not. It was a, <laughs> it was a red flag with uh, an ichthus or a, a Christian fish, a Jesus fish with the word Jesus written on it. And, and that was one particular thing that I saw in the news coverage and was horrified by. I will say another thing that I was horrified by when I was watching that particular coverage 
that led me to be particularly passionate about this episode is that I was watching CBS News, watching that particular coverage, and the anchor who was speaking at the time, I believe, was Nora O'Donnell. And she was narrating what was happening as people were being, as the, as the curfew was being imposed. And she said, there are a lot of followers of Donald Trump here. And there are a lot of followers of Jesus here as well. Hmm. And I went, oh, no, because it just hurt my heart so much that so many people in the country were hearing that followers of Jesus were behind this insurrection, this monumental thing that was happening. And that cemented in my mind the need for this to be more of a discussion and a conversation and not... This massive billboard that says Christian nationalism, Jesus followers ruin the capital. Yeah, that, I, can I read a quote? Yes, that, please. That I think that echoes that same sentiment. In, in some of the research I was doing, I read an article called How Citizens of Heaven Think Through the Chaos at the Capitol by a guy named, <laughs> by a guy named Jason Meyer. And this was one, it was, it was all a good article, but this is one of the things that I pulled out in trying to define Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism turns all of this teaching on its head, says the future of the church is directly dependent on the future of our nation. One definition I appreciate comes from Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. So he's quoting Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. This says, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. Um, then goes on to say, the danger of Christian nationalism is my biggest burden concerning what I witnessed on Wednesday. This is where I feel so much heartache and hopefully righteous anger for what happened at the Capitol building. And this is the part that got me, Jill. I'm saddened that many people did what they did in the name of Trump, but I'm scandalized and horrified that some people did it also in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, that is... That is cutting. Because you just said when we were talking about U-turns, the ways in which we are encouraged and invited to hold people accountable for what they do when they say they're doing it in the name of God or in the name of Jesus. Yeah. And just to be clear, I mean, we are talking about the violence and the oppression and the overturning of the government part. Sure, there were protesters there wanting to be peaceful protesters, but there's no question that that turned into something else. Yeah. Well, and if we think about the evils and the horrible things that have been done where that has been justified, I think about Christian nationalism and the ways in which it played a role in lynching Mm. and the ways Mm. in which people were violently murdered because they felt as though they had this right that America is this white Christian nation and therefore you are not white or you are not ascribing to my brand of christianity and so you have to be eliminated and that's that's that didn't start with with trump right it's it's i i think it is problematic for the country to look at the idea of christian nationalism as something that started with the 2016 presidential election yeah i think that's a that is a point of view that is steeped in privilege and ignorance. That that we want to blame everything. We want to put all of this on one particular person. And that's that's not fair. It's yeah. not right. It's, you know, I'm not sure when this conflation of, of religion and 
politics began. Well, it began at the beginning. We know when it started. But I remember listening to a podcast. One of my favorite podcasts is called You're Wrong About. Yes. Which, um, have you been listening to it? I know mm-hmm. I keep telling you to listen to it. <laughs> and it's, it's um, what the hosts do is take one particular event um, and that maybe has had a more one-dimensional narrative in the media. And then they try to pull it apart a little bit. And one of the first episodes I listened to was the Dan Quayle, Murphy Brown episode. Interesting, yes. And it's been a while since I've listened to it, so I may I may not get this completely right. But it was basically, again, for those of you who may not remember, Dan Quayle was vice president of the first George Bush president. And there was a TV show called Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown, played by Candace Bergman, was a single news anchor, I believe, who became pregnant. And Dan Quayle made a reference to her pregnancy and basically somehow, whether he said it in his speech, I believe it was kind of a throwaway part of his speech according to this podcast, but this one particular part of his speech got pulled out that Dan Quayle is saying Murphy Brown's the downfall of American morality and that, that some people say that was one of the really important moments of when Republican politics became conflated with American Christianity. And it wasn't so much like that was overall laughed at. Dan Quill, you know, has is made some gaffes that have been remembered much more than any other political. I'm sure he did many other good things in his political career or any other thing. But he's remembered for some misspelling of words and for the Murphy Brown thing. Yeah. And what what you're wrong about with this podcast pointed out was that that was a moment where even though that might have been laughed at there was a recognition of when you can tap into righteous anger that riles people up yep that gets people to the voting booth that gets people passionate and i feel like that is really what we're seeing underneath this whole thing is this idea of righteous anger and so perpetually creating creating something to be angry about yeah yeah. When they're really, there's plenty of things in the world to be angry about, but I'm, but you know, gay marriage is not one of them. Right. <laughs> Injustice, oppression, poverty, hunger, you know, just to name a few. Yeah. Sorry, that was a road rage soapbox for me, but. <laughs> well, I think about these other billboards. One of the things I was looking at in terms of pop culture was I found this tweet from Rain Wilson, who's best known for being on the television show The Office, who played Dwight Schrute. And in this particular tweet, he wrote, The metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from a humble servant of the abject poor to a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, limited government that neglects the destitute, and fierce nationalism is truly the strangest transformation in human history. It is baffling. And it's so fascinating because evidently... The Office was sort of this kind of ubiquitously popular television show. And that particular tweet from Rain Wilson got a lot of hate. And there was um, sort of the, as we've heard from many other things, like this cancel culture of like, all right, well, if you're a Christian, then you can't support the, you can't watch The Office anymore because Rain Wilson said something that makes you feel uncomfortable and he's part of The Office. And that is a really interesting way in which not only are we dealing with religion and politics, but now we're dealing with pop culture and this whole messy conglomeration of 
in this binary of something's either all good or all bad. Right. You're either on my side or you're on the other side. Yes. You're either a Christian or you're not. You either support Christians or you don't. Instead of recognizing kind of this whole continuum of ways that people are good and bad. And and you can support the right for other religions to worship while not being a part of those other religions. Yeah. And, you know, being friend with a Muslim doesn't mean that I'm less of a Christian. Right. Yes. It's a security and a trust. And, a, yeah, there are so many things that go into that. I think the other really big billboard that plays into this idea about Christian nationalism, and I, I feel like it would not be a responsible episode of this podcast if we talked about Christian nationalism without talking about President Donald Trump and the idea of Trumpism. And I would like to say, again, I said it earlier in the episode, I'm, I'm not super objective about this. I have a lot of feelings about it. And I also think that a whole lot of people in America have a lot of feelings, maybe a whole lot of people in the world. But there are ways in which Trumpism and Christian nationalism are two maybe different vehicles driving down the same road. And that there are ideals of Christian nationalism and there are ideals of Trumpism that are borrowing from each other and that are using that power and control and privilege to to sort of equate things. And I, I want to leave open the possibility that they, they are not identical, that one is different from the other and that they can be separated because there are ways in which there are some ideals in Trumpism that don't mesh with Christian nationalism. But if we talk about the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, if we talk about Christian nationalism, it's irresponsible to separate Trumpism from that. Yeah, and I I will confess as I hear you talk, I'm I'm not as clear about that separation. Like I it I I don't understand how they're all conflated. I don't understand how they're tied together. But in my mind, I, I, it didn't start with Trumpism, but to me, they have they have merged. Sure. I'm sure there are people who believe in Christian nationalism that maybe would not support him in particular. And I also want to leave space for, I know lots of people who voted for Trump who are not Christian nationalists. <laughs> sure, who exactly. Maybe don't even like much of what he has to say and they voted for him for a wide variety of reasons and they have to make their own they have to to figure that out for themselves um but the idea when i think of trumpism it does seem that is it at least using christian nationalism for power or is it at least been using christianity for power yeah yeah and i i guess if we talk about a, a u-turn connected to the billboard if we wanted to you know, plaster over let's that. Intersect our, let's intersect our categories. Intersect our categories. <laughs> We're driving these metaphors all over the place. Um, but I would I would hope that the, the ideals and aspirations of people who follow Jesus, that they would look at Christian nationalism, that they would look at Trumpism, and that they would examine those, and that there would be this reintroduction of questioning, a release of control, and perhaps even a release of the insecurity that it has to be this way. And the, the attention-getting nature, I think, of, of Trumpism, that have to be the center of attention, at the center, the biggest, the hugest, the best, all of the time. 
and the ways in which Christian nationalism just sort of fits into that piece that that Trumpism was using Christian nationalism as a tool along with many other Ugh. tools. That's some, we didn't even go there with kind of, if we take out just the word nationalism, what that means, that we are the best. It's all about being the best. And if we're the best, that means other people are not the best. And that we have to, that just, again, this exceptionalism that, yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. Well, it's yeah. not a whole other podcast, but it's a whole other, I'm shutting up. Well, sort of the illusion in the way that we talked about being chosen, that being chosen by God means that God didn't choose everybody. Um, I I have something that I love to say to my congregation all the time. Y'all are my favorite. Y'all, and I'm not a a Southerner from birth, but (laughs) y'all is something that I have recently embraced. Y'all are my favorite is something that God says all the time. God can have infinitely number of favorites. And so... This exclusionary nature of nationalism, of Christian nationalism, of Trumpism, I think all of those things, that's that's an exclusionary yeah. means. Well, and it's it's it, it again becomes this binary of to be patriotic and to believe in the ideals of our country, me it, it's okay to question that too. Like it doesn't mean you can't question it. So nationalism kind of is patriotism on a slew of steroids taking it to this thing of we're the best no one can question us no one can do you can't you can't question us there's nothing wrong with us because we're amazing i can love my country and i can question things that happen in my country right and whether my country is doing the right thing and whether my country's history has been whitewashed and exactly things that doesn't make me not patriotic yes and how we learn about our history and how we talk about our history and how I think we can look at other places in the world where horrible, unspeakable things have happened in the past. And rather than not talking about them or ignoring them or refusing to allow that they exist, there there's a confessional nature, which I'm bringing some religious, there's another intersection of the ways in which we confess what what is not great about our country and this idea that if we confess that it's problematic that our founding fathers owned slaves were somehow denying the greatness of our country in its entirety to question one thing is to question all of it which is yeah not what we want it's this idea that when a relationship has been broken it can't be restored without some confession and reparation and repair work and our nation you know never had a good relationship our nation has a broken relationship with its citizens of color because of our history that we've never completely acknowledged or recognized the need to restore and repair yeah yeah so we've been on quite the journey on the it's idea of journey. Christian nationalism. <laughs> so sort of our closing segment, if we're to put everything in park and just sort of take a breath and look at everything, what are what are your final thoughts? Yeah, so some final thoughts is I just think back about all of this and my different intersections of identities between being a counselor and being a Christian and being an American and where all of the, and being a white woman, where all of those intersections go I just I think I love this country I 
this country grieves me greatly and I don't think this country is perfect, but I love this country and I love Jesus. <laughs> and I love that this country allows me to love Jesus and to talk about Jesus and to worship Jesus and doesn't dictate to me that I have to love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that God has been about freedom, like from the Garden of Eden. God's all about freedom. God trusts us with freedom. And Christian nationalism, Christian nationalists don't trust Americans with freedom. Like that's just what I think I take from it. They don't trust. How crazy is that? Christian it's nationalists so don't trust Americans with freedom. So yeah. I would just ask Christians to trust other people to have their faith journey. And to trust God to do the work without imposition and without power and control. Yeah, that's really beautiful and really powerful. Yeah, for me, I echo all of those things that, that you have said. And also, it, it is my sincerest hope. Just like we say at the beginning of this podcast that we don't want to make you think like us. We just want to make you think. Um, I pray that this, hearing this conversation encourages you to have conversations of your own and to do some self-examination about what you believe and why you believe it and about what kind of privilege you have and what kind of power you have and what you do with that privilege and that power. And I think that is a civic responsibility and I think that that's a faithful responsibility. Whatever kind of faith that you ascribe to, what kind of power do you have and what kind of privilege do you have and how are you going to use it? What are you doing with it? So this episode has been very loaded and we're really grateful that you have stuck with us through yes. it. And we would love to hear from you. We have said it before and we will say it again. We really like you. We do. No matter, even if you disagree with us, we really like you. We do really like you. So please find us on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Sacred Intersections Podcast, on the Twitter at Sacred Pod. Um, please leave a review if you are so inclined to help other people find this podcast. If you think it's worthy of people finding it, please share it on your social media. If you think what we're saying is something that might be interesting or helpful in any way for someone else to hear it, you know, we would greatly appreciate you sharing it. Um, this is a long one. I don't know if you want people to start <laughs> with this one. Absolutely. Well, and um, in addition to interacting with us on social media, you can go to our website, sacredintersectionspodcast.com. Or if you want to share something with us directly, you can send us an email, sacredintersectionspodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether it's uh, specific to this particular episode or this particular sacred intersection, or if you have ideas about other intersections you'd like us to talk about or some of the new segments and things that you've heard this week, we look forward to the chance yeah. to interact with you, our dear roadies. And we're going to put links to all of the articles that I referenced and had quotes from in the show notes. So check that out. Um, lots of interesting stuff in our research that we'd love to share with you. So thanks for joining us and safe travels on all your sacred intersections throughout the week.